Amen. Yes, let's pray big. Let's think big. Let's dream big. Let's give big. Uh, this is an exciting opportunity for us. All of those projects for me are things that are, are really uh, terrific, really exciting. Our elders are incredibly excited to sort of think through what, 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 what we're going to have be part of this offering. And so you can begin to give now. But specifically, this felt like a strategic week, especially before Black Friday, um, for you to start thinking about what's, what's money look like for you the rest of the year. Uh, and what are you going to invest in? What are you going to give to that's going to make an eternal difference? What are you going to give to that, that by 3 p.m. on Christmas Day, you're still going to be happy you gave to? Um, and uh, these are some efforts that we want to encourage you to do that with. And so um, I'm really excited. I love, we've had at both services, spontaneous applause at the idea of bringing Josh on to lead students uh, full time. And that is, that is well deserved. That's exciting. Um, that's going to begin um, like mid-year next year. He, he's already part time but he's finishing his school year commitment. He teaches high school math, and so uh, when that finishes, he'll join us, and that, that, you know, that'll be a great thing for him, for his family, and for our team. So uh, the lion's share of this offering will go to that. A um, couple other things I wanted to just let you know about. Um, you may wonder, if you, kind of follow, if, if you come here, we try to be pretty transpa- as transparent as we can with our finances, and so you'll notice on the back of your program, every week we put in, this, this week's budget, this week's giving, year-to-date budget, year-to-date giving. If you follow that at all, you may notice there's a gap between budgeted need and, and actual giving. And, you, and, and the gap in there is about $50,000 that you see. And you may go, well, what in the world are we doing giving this other thing when we already have this gap? Well, I want to tell you um, a couple things. First, because we've seen some of the, the, just the track, the progression of where our giving's been, as a staff, we've been very, very conservative in our spending. So that $50,000 is not an actual gap. Like, we haven't spent $50,000 more than it's come in. It's really, at this point, closer to ten. Uh, and so we've been really conservative. There are things that we had budgeted for that we've not done this year because, because we've sort of seen that progression. And so uh, I, 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 the gap's not as big as it looks like. And my belief is that generosity begets generosity. That if we get in our hearts this idea of, of that everything belongs to God, we want to give generously to him and for his sake, I think that we will crush the $40,000 goal and, and meet the gap that we have in our budget. And so I want you to pray that way. I want you to, to, to think that way. And I want you to dream big on it. Just to do some math on this, if you think about this for a minute, we have typically anywhere from 400 to 500 adults that, that worship here on a Sunday. If 400 adults each gave $100, $40,000. You're there. Now, some of you would look at that and go, I can't imagine where I'm going to get $100. You don't understand how, th- how lean things are right now. And so that's okay. We're not saying everyone has to do this. But, but you might go, well, I, I can't give 100 but what can I give? And what can I do that's sacrificial towards that? Some of you should give way more than $100. Some of you should give $10,000. You, you laugh. I'm sure the ones laughing are not the ones that should give $10,000. <laughs> but some of you should. Honestly, like some of you, you have the capacity to do much more and to make a much bigger difference than others. And, and you don't have to. It's not a pay your fair share kind of thing. It's, it's you, you, you've been blessed. You have an opportunity to be a blessing. So I just want to challenge and invite you to pray that. M- M- Molly and I are, are looking at this right now. We've been talking and sort of praying, what are we going to give to? How is this going to work? 
over the coming, uh, coming weeks and months. And so um, pray big, dream big, give big, and let's, uh, let's make this happen. We'll share this video online as well if you want to share it on Facebook or whatever. And, uh, and, and the way you do this, just mark on your, on, if you write checks, just mark Christmas offering. If you give online, you can select Gateway Christmas offering, and uh, we'll try to obliterate this goal. How about it, huh? So let's, uh, let's, let's pray together for a moment. God, uh, we acknowledge that you're a giver. The heart of the gospel is you giving. You so love the world that you gave your only son. And so God, make us generous people. Make us eager to bless. Lord, help us believe that we've been blessed to be a blessing. We pray for this offering in particular. Pray that it would bear much fruit in our church and outside our church in the weeks and months and years to come. We pray that in Jesus' great name. Amen. Hey, we're going to turn into the scripture here in just a moment, but some kind of little unplanned uh, wrinkle here in the service. We have a guest here with us today, and I'm going to embarrass him. Um, Adam, will you come up here? Um, come on up. You, the steps are right over here. Um, you, why are you clapping? You don't know who this guy is. This is, uh, this is Adam Bailey, and Adam, now you can clap. Welcome Adam Bailey, everybody. And Adam, yeah, Adam, you got the team shoe. That's yeah, perfect. Hey, um, Adam is planting Harvest Bible Chapel Chandler. He's the lead pastor for that. You guys are planting, er, your launch day is like early December, December right? Yeah. December 2nd? Yeah. So that is really cool. We love Harvest Bible Chapel. They preach God's word without uh, apology and, and really do a, a, a great ministry. Um, we've been blessed as our church, our leadership. We've done a lot of work with Harvest Bible Chapel North Phoenix. Um, and uh, yep. uh, Adam's church is a plant out of that. And so we're, I, I just saw him here today and thought, we've got to bring him up here and pray for him. Thank you. And uh, t- remind me of your wife's name? Renee. Renee, okay. And uh, let's take a moment. Can we pray for Adam and for their team? Father, thank you for the truth that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so, God, we pray that you would empower Adam and his team to plant the gospel in Chandler. God, we pray that their work would be faithful, and we pray it would be fruitful. God, I pray especially for he and Renee and for their family. Pray that you would protect them against the works and the plans and the accusations of the enemy. Pray that you would allow them to have a strong marriage and healthy, strong lives that would that would be exemplary as they lead the church. And God, we pray that many people would come to know Christ and be grown uh, deeper in their relationship with him through Adam and his ministry. So we pray for that, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Thanks, buddy. Good to see you. All right, grab your Bible. We're going to open it up to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read verses 17 through 22. This is on page 1016. If you have one of the black hardcover Bibles, go ahead and stand as well. We're going to stand and, and read this together. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 through 22. Page 1016, if you have the black hardcover Bible. And as we read here, remember, we're reading God's Word. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, 
because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That's God's word. May it live in our hearts. You may be seated. Well, I don't have a real flowery introduction or a cute story to share to get into this. Uh, We're just going to get into it, and I'm excited to get into it, because today what we're looking at is one of the most important verses in the Bible, followed by one of the most confusing verses in the Bible. And so we got a lot of work to do um, to help you understand the really important verse, and then to try to make sense of the really confusing verse, and I'm excited to get into this. Uh, with you. We're studying this book of 1 Peter. It's written by the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' core disciples. And in this particular section, what Peter is doing is he's, he's preparing people and encouraging them to stay faithful even when they're suffering, specifically when they're suffering for their faith. There's all kinds of suffering that happens to us. Some of it just you can't prepare for, health and accidents and things like that. There's other suffering that happens because of our foolish decisions and our sin and the consequences of those things. And and then there's the suffering that happens because we're obedient. And and Peter says in verse 17, this is kind of the intro verse to, to this idea, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Saying, listen, when your marriage is broken apart and you're suffering because you've been looking at pornography and having emotional conversations with people that are not your spouse, and then your marriage is crumbling and you suffer for it? Yeah, like, that's what happens. That's the the fruit of sin. It says when you say a harsh word to somebody and it begins to break down the relationship and they don't trust you anymore and you suffer because that trust is broken, yeah, that's what happens. And Peter's saying, don't suffer that way. <laughs> suffer because you did what was right, because you said, I'm going to plant my flag in the ground. I'm going I'm to obey the Lord no matter what. And even if people speak against me, even if people say, who do you think you are? And, they begin to su- and I begin to suffer that, that's okay, because it's better to suffer for doing what's good than for doing what's evil. And so what I'm going to do in this, in this particular message here today, a little different than I normally do, a lot of times I'll work through a passage and explain what it means and come back with sort of here's the big idea, here's what we take away, here, here's what this means. I'm going to kind of flip the order today, and I hope you'll understand why as, as we get into it. But, but here's the big idea today. Faithful suffering leads to victory. Faithful suffering leads to victory. That's Peter's point. Peter, in this passage that we're looking at, he, he said it's better to suffer for doing what's good than for what's evil. And now what we're looking at here, 18 to 22, illustrates it. It's just examples of it. And so he's going to give two examples of the reality that when we're faithful in suffering, it leads to victory. It, it, even though it hurts now, hang in there and it'll be okay. That's what he's saying. And he gives two examples. The examples he gives are Jesus and Noah. Talks about Jesus in verse 18 and, and says that Jesus suffered, but that led to victory. Then he talks about Noah and how Noah, I mean, can you imagine being the guy who's trying to build a ship in the, in the desert? Right? I mean, we live in the desert. 
Imagine if one of your neighbors is out there someday, you know, building this giant wooden boxy boat. You go, what are you building that for? And he goes, you're going you to take it to the lake? No, not for the lake. Okay, well, what's it for? Well, I think there's a flood coming. God told me. And uh, it's coming. It's going to destroy the world. And uh, this is going to keep me safe. And in the meantime, God wants me to gather up all the animals and make sure that uh, life continues. How quickly would you run away from that person? Right? You'd go, I, I don't think, I, honey, I thought our neighborhood was safe. And now people like that live here, right? And that's what the people of Noah's day thought about Noah. And as a result, only eight people ended up on that boat. And the rest of the world destroyed in God's judgment. But, but Noah was faithful in his suffering and was victorious. That, those are the examples he's giving. And then he can, he's going to close with this idea that Jesus is at the right hand of God. He's reigning over powers and principalities, rulers, demons, authorities, everything. Jesus is victorious. We can be victorious in our faithful suffering because Jesus is. So that's where he's going. That's his big idea. That's what this is about. Now what I want to do is, is really go into the verses and really kind of work this through and, uh, and help us try to navigate uh, this really important verse, but also this really confusing verse. And so verse 18 is important. I don't want to say it's the most important verse in the Bible, but it's one of them. If you're a follower of Christ, this is a verse that you'll read and you'll go, yes, I believe this. I love this. And, and my prayer is that you would cling to this truth, that the truth in verse 18 would be something that's powerful, that impacts you, that shapes you, that impacts the way you think and the way you live and the way you worship and the way you pray and, and that becomes a message that's on your lips everywhere you go. Others of you, you're not yet followers of Christ, and maybe you're new to this, and you're exploring what is, what is the Bible about. Verse 18 is an unbelievable summary of what the Bible's about. It's the gospel in a nutshell. If you understand verse 18, you understand the point of the Bible. This is an incredibly important thing. Verse 18 says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We'll get to the confusing thing here in a moment, and, and that'll be really interesting and really tantalizing, and you'll want to go back to your redemption communities and talk about, well, which interpretation of verse 19 did you think was right? And what you, but, but don't miss verse 18. Right? We have, a, we have a culture where we love the sensational and we miss the most important. Don't do that. This verse is incredibly important. It tells us six things about Jesus just in the first half of verse 18. First, it tells us that Jesus suffered. He suffered. Now, this suffering culminated in death. And so some translations, the NIV, will translate this as Jesus died. Jesus' suffering led to death. Right? Peter's talking about suffering. Suffering for your faith. He's saying... Example number one, Jesus. Jesus suffered. Number two, this death, this suffering, Jesus died once. Jesus died once. Do you see that? For Christ also suffered once for sins. Now we go, well, of course he suffered. He died once. You, I mean, how many times, do you, how many chances do you get to die, right? You only die once. But that's not Peter's point. Peter's point here is that Jesus' death was a once for all. Christ suffered once for sins. 
I like the way John MacArthur describes it in his commentary on these verses. He says this, For the Jews so familiar with their sacrificial system, this was a new concept. To atone for sin, they had slaughtered millions of animals over the centuries. During their annual Passover celebration, as many as a quarter million sheep would be sacrificed. But Jesus Christ, one sacrificial death ended that insufficient parade of animals to the altar and was sufficient for all and for all time. Right? If you've ever tried to read the Bible and you try to go through a year, you'll at some point run into Leviticus and you'll go, uh, I'm not exactly sure how relevant this is to me because there's a lot of it that's talking about sacrificing animals. And that's because that's how people tried to atone for their sin. I sinned. I deserve death. This animal's going to die in my place. And so this parade of animals throughout history, and Jesus finishes it. Jesus dies once. When Jesus dies on the cross, he shouts out, it is finished. It's done. And he sits down at the right hand of God. And he, he does, his blood does what the blood of bulls and goats and doves could never do which is once and for all take away sin. So when you read Leviticus, the reason it's relevant is because it's pointing to Jesus. And Jesus died once for sins. It's sufficient. Listen, there are many of you who are, who are still trying to complete your atonement. Well, yeah, Jesus got me started, but I got to be a good person. Jesus got me started, but I got to do the right thing. Jesus got me started, but I got to, got to, got to, got to, got to. And you're crushed under the weight of religiosity, thinking that somehow that would make you better. Jesus did it all. Jesus died once for sins. We've talked about this already, but number three, Jesus died for sins. That may strike you as obvious, but he didn't die just to be an example. He died as a as a substitute for sinners. He died for sins. Now, Jesus didn't commit any sins. So that leads us to the next thing. Jesus died for the unrighteous. The unrighteous, the ungodly, the sinners. This is who Jesus died for. Now, you may bristle at the idea of unrighteous. Well, who are you to say unrighteous? Ungodly. Well, well listen. God is perfectly righteous. God is perfect. Right? And we even have a phrase that we use all the time. Well, nobody's perfect. So therefore, you're not perfect. You're not like God. You're not godly. You're ungodly. You're unrighteous. That's what it means. Now, turn to somebody next to you and say, you're, you're not unright. You're unrighteous. You're unrighteous. Some of you are nervous to do that because it's like, they're going to go, well, you're more unright. Yeah, 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 we know. But, but the point here is, listen, the scripture says, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. There is no one righteous, no, not one, the Bible says. So, so everyone in this room is unrighteous, right? Oftentimes people will bristle at Christianity because they'll think, well, Christ, Christians act like, like Jesus only loves the righteous. No, Jesus died for the unrighteous. That's what it says. Christ died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. What qualifies you to experience God's grace in Jesus? 
You're a sinner. Jesus died for the unrighteous. Number five, Jesus died undeservingly. We get this because it says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So, so Jesus was the one who hadn't sinned. You couldn't turn to Jesus and say, you're unrighteous. He'd go, no, I'm not. And he wasn't. He, he was righteous. He always obeyed his father. Even, I mean, think about the assaults he faced from the enemy 40 days without food or water in the wilderness and then tempted by the devil to, ha- to, to get everything he would eventually get, but to get it now. And Jesus says no. And he fulfills all righteousness. Jesus was perfect. So Jesus didn't deserve to die. Right, the scripture says the wages of sin is death. What you, what you earn from sinning is death. Jesus never sinned. Jesus never earned that. So when Jesus dies for sin once for all, it's as a substitute. It's in our place. This is at the heart of Christianity. The righteous for the unrighteous. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us in our place. Why? Why would he do that? Peter continues. Jesus died to bring the unrighteous to God. That's why. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. I love this word, bring us. It's the idea of making an introduction. I don't know if you've ever needed to meet somebody important. Maybe someone's society would say is important, or just someone important in your career or in your line of work or something. And there will be times where, where someone I know will want to meet someone else, and I'm kind of the, I'm the connection, right? And so occasionally what you'll do is you'll send an email, maybe to both people. You'll say, uh, Phil, I want you to meet Tom, and I want you to, you know, I'd love for you guys to connect, and then they run with it, right? But you've made the introduction. What you've done at that point is you've given access to the person who didn't have it. And what this says, is that Jesus Christ died as our substitute to, to make an introduction to God, to bring us to God. It's, as if God. it's as if Jesus comes in through his death and he goes to his father and he says, hey, father, there's someone I want you to meet. It's you. Jesus died once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And that is what will bring you to God. What will bring you to God is never enough, uh, well, I need to read my Bible more. Well, I need to give more money to the Christmas offering. Well, I need to come to church more regularly. Well, I need to, I No. Jesus did it all. That's why this is one of the most important verses in the Bible. Because it tells us, what is this all about? See, every other religion, every other perspective is, is man trying to get to God. Man trying to make an introduction, hauling all his good deeds and effort behind him. And in the gospel, it's Jesus saying, no, I've got the good deeds. And I died in your place. I want you to meet my father. It's incredibly important. Don't miss the importance of that verse. It's incredibly, incredibly important. And that's about where the clarity ends. All right? On this passage, okay? So we, very clear, verse 18. Now we go very unclear, verse 19. And we'll, we'll talk about this. We'll have a little bit of fun with this. 
Um, we do a thing with Redemption Pastors uh, every Wednesday. Every Wednesday we have what we call Preaching Collective, and it's 10 days in advance of the Sunday sermon. And all the preachers from all the congregations, some of the interns, and some of the people that are being trained to preach, we all get in a room, and we've studied a passage, and we talk about it, and we wrestle through it, and we come up with big ideas and other thoughts, and it's really, really helpful. I think I've I think I've improved a lot as a preacher because of it. And so we, we came in to, to the study of this particular passage. And when we got to verse 19, there's a couple different ways to interpret it, really. And we kind of put them up on the board. And we said, how many of you think it's this one? And how many of you think it's this one? And it was three against three. And I was the tiebreaker. And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I've, I've studied both. I have no idea. And I felt like I was in good company because then I found this quote by Martin Luther, the reformer, Martin Luther, who was pretty certain about just about everything, said this about this verse. He said, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. <laughs> so if you read this when we were standing and you went like, this doesn't make sense, like said everyone, Yes. <laughs> You're in good company. We all agreed. Um, That's absolutely right. It's a tricky thing. And it's funny because Peter's the one who says that Paul's writing is hard to understand. And here you have this. So I want to dig into this verse. Um, It's going to be, the the digging into this is probably going to feel a little bit more like like lecture than sermon. We're going to kind of do some learning. We didn't check our brains at the door, right? It's okay to learn a little bit while we're at church. All right, we'll do that. Um, But let let me just give you an introductory couple things just as it relates to Bible studies, it relates to when you come to passages like this. Let me help you understand some things that are important. First, you need to understand the difference between close-handed and open-handed issues. Close-handed and open-handed issues. Close-handed issues are issues that you would die for. They are issues that you would go, I am holding on to that. I am not letting it go. You cannot rip that out of my hand. That is a belief that is of utmost importance. Okay, so close-handed issues would be things like there's one God in three persons. The Bible is God's word. Jesus is God. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus died once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is coming back. Things like that. Things like verse 18. Closed-handed issues. Then there's open-handed issues. Issues that aren't irrelevant and and, and aren't unimportant, they're just not as important. You're not going to die for this. You die for that. So so issues like this would be um, open-handed issues, would would be things like the nature of spiritual gifts or miraculous gifts for today, tongues, prophecy, those sorts of things. Open-handed would be things like the specifics of how exactly creation came about and things like that. There's, there's closed-handed issues, open-handed issues. Now, open-handed, get this, doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It just means it's not worth dividing over, right? So, so for example, one pastor I, I, I saw was talking about these verses, and he said, I would, I would take a bullet for verse 18, but I wouldn't take a paper cut for verse 19, okay? So, that's an important thing is, is all scripture is inspired by God. It's not all equally clear. And so, so we, we understand the difference between closed-handed and open-handed issues. That's the first thing. The second thing is when it comes to interpreting unclear passages of scripture, we always want to let the clear passages inform the unclear. 
Okay, so there's, there's a lot of Scripture that's very clear. And we want to let that inform the things that are less clear. The theological word for this is perspicuity, which why they couldn't come up with a clearer word for that, <laughs> I don't know. But, but it's, it's that idea. And oftentimes what this means is often the clear passage doesn't always give you the answer of what the unclear one means, but often it will tell you what it doesn't mean. So it helps you eliminate options. Okay, we, we know it doesn't mean that because all this other clear scripture is very, you know, do you get that idea? And so what makes this a really tricky verse is that the passages that are sort of connected to this one when you cross-reference it are also fairly unclear. Good news, it doesn't impact the ultimate point Peter's making. The point he's making is if you're faithful and you're suffering, it'll lead to victory. Okay, but let's, let's go through it. Let's look at what the uh, options are, how we could interpret this. Specifically, what we're looking at is verse, uh, verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20. Talking about Jesus, alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Okay, so, so here's what we know. Jesus went somewhere. He talked to some group of something, and he said something. Okay? Clear. All right, verse 20. No, just kidding. Okay, so the question when we interpret this is going, when did he preach? Who did he preach to? And what did he say? When did he preach? Who did he preach to? What did he say? Now, there's a couple different ways that, that people look at it. I'll give you the first one. I, I don't think it's the first one, and I'll, I'll just be very clear about that. But there is one way that some people have interpreted it. Perhaps you've thought of it this way. I don't think this is one of the options, and I'll, I'll show you why. Here's the first, the first idea. Is that Jesus preached between his death and resurrection to unbelievers in hell to offer them a second chance at salvation. Or Jesus preached to the people in purgatory, that sort of idea. Now, this is an example where what's clear helps inform what's unclear, and specifically, it helps us eliminate options. So nowhere in the Bible is there ever discussion about the idea of a purgatory or the idea of, of limbo or the idea of a place where you have to, you know, work out some of the kinks before you go to heaven. That's not in the Bible anywhere. In fact, what's in the Bible is this, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. We will die, and then we will be judged. And the moment you die, you'll be in heaven or you'll be in hell. There's not a limbo. There's not a, a you know, all right, St. Peter, let me slip you a 20. All right, there, there's no, like, way to negotiate this afterwards. I mean, all the jokes with St. Peter at the pearly gates, they're jokes. Right? Like, you die, it's set. And we know it's set because Jesus told a story once. He told it in Luke chapter 16. He told it about a rich man and a man named Lazarus. And Lazarus was a poor beggar, and he would stay outside the rich man's gate and, and ask for things. And, and the rich man always sort of ignored him. And the idea of the story is that both of them died. And they both die, and uh, Lazarus is in paradise, and the rich man is suffering. And he, and he can see Lazarus from, from hell. He can see him. 
and he can tell that there's a good party going on up there, right? Any, any notion that there's a party going on in hell is wrong. Okay, any notion that, that Satan's in charge of hell and he's having a good party and I'd rather be with the people there. No. And so what, what the rich man asked Lazarus, he says, can you please just dip your finger in water and, and touch my tongue to quench some of the anguish that I'm in? And Lazarus says, no, I can't do it. And here's part of why. He says, besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. In other words, this, this chasm is fixed. You die, you go to heaven, you go to hell, and you're there forever. Everyone spends eternity somewhere. And so on in the story, the, the rich man says, well, okay, I get that, but can you at least send an angel back to my brothers and tell them about this? And the answer is no. If they didn't believe the scriptures, they won't believe us. So your chance to respond to, to, to Jesus wanting to bring you in to God, your chance is now. Your chance is in this life. This is the only certain time you have. And you will die. And after that, the judgment. And it would break my heart if you would sit there and go, well, someday, maybe I'll make a change someday. You have the chance now. Scripture says that if the Spirit's voice is moving on you, today is the day of salvation. Don't quench it. Don't push it back. But back to this particular verse, what that means, what all that truth means is that this can't be the interpretation. There's nowhere where, where, where you get another chance. You get a do-over. You get to negotiate with Jesus. That's, that's not a biblical idea. So that first, that first idea, we'll sort of just cross that out and say that's not, that's not one of them. Okay? Now, of the next two, the next two are the two that we put up on the board in our preacher's meeting. The next two are... Uh, Really good attempts to interpret this verse. Either one, I think, has a lot of validity. So let me just talk you through a little bit what they are. The second one is this. It's the idea that Jesus preached in the days of Noah, through Noah, you know, by his spirit, uh, preached through Noah to the people of Noah's day. And the message was, turn from your sin, judgment's coming. To which they all said, Sorry, we are not interested. But this is this interpretation. This comes from a couple of different reasons. There's a couple ways that people get to this conclusion. One is, in the book of 2 Peter, Peter is, or I'm sorry, Noah is referenced again. And in that book, he's called a herald of righteousness. Same, same word as, as proclaim here. So he's a herald of righteousness. So that's, that's one support for this view. Another is that in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, Peter said that the Spirit of Christ spoke through the prophets. And so Noah, in a sense, was a prophet, and the Spirit of Christ was speaking through him to these people. The other reason why this is a pretty valid argument is that the context of 1 Peter is, is written towards a, a persecuted, suffering minority, my, small group of people, and that's what Noah was too, right? I mean, Noah is proclaiming this message while he's building this boat, and in the end, only eight people, it says, in verse 20, 
A few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So that's, that's one option. That's one perspective of how to look at it. I think there's a lot of validity to that. The concern I have it, about it is small, but it sort of has the idea of, of uh, well, I, I won't get into that. I think the other view is slightly more compelling. Okay? So again, I'm not dying for this, but let me give you option number three. Now, in your redemption community, you can argue about this. You can talk about this. But please, if someone comes in to the community and they say, I figured it out. I know what it is. Just stone that guy. <laughs> or get him out. I mean, just say, you're not welcome here anymore. You don't know what you're talking about. Like, if everyone else couldn't figure it out, you think you, right, just don't stone him. That's not nice. <laughs> but here's the third perspective. The third perspective is that Jesus preached after his resurrection to fallen angels who are awaiting judgment, and the message was victory. How do you like them apples? Booyah. <laughs> okay? That's the third. Now, that's, that's in the Greek. <laughs> but this is the third perspective. The idea here is that, that Jesus uh, proclaiming to the spirits in prison is, is the beginning of a victory tour. That's what this is. And so, again, I don't want to preach this like, this is the one and the other one's stupid. They're both very good arguments. I, I lean towards this one. Maybe 60-40. Uh, and let me give you just a little bit of, of why. So the, the argumentation for this particular view would be, uh, you see in verse 19, it says, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That word spirits, when it's plural, is almost always referring to a supernatural being, not a human. So you encounter this a lot when you read the Gospels and they say, who is this? What is this new teaching with authority? He casts out evil spirits and they obey him. That's almost always how this word is used, to refer to some sort of supernatural, particularly demonic kind of uh, force or, or being. The second thing is that the word prison is not used in Scripture as a place of, of punishment for human beings, but as a, as a place for Satan and for, for evil spirits. And so just for example, uh, Revelation chapter 20 says, When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Second Peter 2 Again, this is Peter writing again about this similar idea. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, there's this, they're kept in chains, they're kept in prison. The, the, spirits of, the evil spirits, the fallen angels have disobeyed. And they're awaiting judgment, it says. This is perhaps why when Jesus uh, encounters the demoniac, the, the, the guy who had a legion of demons, here, here's kind of the, the account in I believe it's in Luke. Um, in Luke 8, Jesus asks, what is your name? And, and the, the demon responds, legion, for many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. So it's like the, the evil spirits knew there's this abyss, there's this prison, there's this place, and if we go there, then we're stuck there till, till judgment day, and we can't keep influencing the world for sin. And so, they, so they go, send us into the pigs. You know that story? And the pigs rush off. That's, that's the kind of idea here. Is that's the prison, I think, that's being referred to. And then here's the last reason, um, and I don't have time to get into all of this, but, but Peter's audience likely believed um, that there were evil spirits who possessed human beings during Noah's day. Uh, Genesis 6 is sort of a, an account where you sort of read this. And again, it, if I go to it, I don't have enough time to make it 
clear enough, so I don't want to confuse you more, other than just to say Genesis 6, as well as some other extra-biblical historical accounts that depict what people thought during Peter's time, talk about this idea that, that, that evil spirits had possessed human beings and were, part of, and were partly, therefore, responsible for all the wickedness that was going on in, in Noah's day that then was judged with a flood. Okay, So the idea is that those, those spirits, condemned in the flood, sent to this prison, now Jesus, after his resurrection, he goes and he says, victory, I've overcome you. And think about all that Satan and the, de- and the demons have done to try to, to try to break down the promise of God. So that's, that's what I think. I think it's number three, but only a little. Won't die for that. Here's, here's what's really good news as it relates to this passage, is both of them could be right. Both of them could be right. I mean, it, it's quite likely that the Spirit of Christ was speaking through Noah, to, telling people to repent. It's entirely likely. It's also entirely likely that Jesus went to the, the, the spirits and said, victory, you couldn't hold me down. Both of those are entirely likely. And neither one changes Peter's point, which Peter's point is, if you're faithful in suffering, you'll be victorious. Whether you're Jesus or Noah or you, be faithful. Now, we're introduced another wrinkle in verse 21. So he talks about the water. He talks about Noah being... uh, and eight persons being delivered safely through the water. And then in verse 21, he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now you read that at first, and and if you know the Bible a little bit, or if you just think about verse 18, where we said, you're saved by Jesus. Jesus sacrificed once for all. There's nothing you can do to add to that. There's no amount of good works that would get you to God, right? You heard that, and now you read in verse 21, baptism now saves you. And you, you throw out your red challenge flag and say, okay, I, need to, I don't understand this. I need to, under further review, we gotta, we got to get under the hood and, and figure out what does this mean. And again, we come back to the idea, let clear scripture interpret the unclear. So what what do we, we know it doesn't mean that you're saved because you got dunked in water. We know that because of all that scripture teaches, but we also know it from what he says here in verse 21. It now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. So there's nothing about the physical act of this that saves you. What is it about baptism that, that has a saving kind of nature to it? It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. The appeal to God. It's saying, I see what Jesus has done for me. I see that he has died for my sin. I'm unrighteous. And he's brought me to you, God, and, and now I appeal to you. Save me. And that appeal is always followed by and always includes baptism. It's the outward picture of an inward truth. So it's not baptism itself. It's not like if if you just, I mean, if if that's what it was, believe me, all we do is have a tank of water here and just get as many people in the tank as we can. 
right? If that was it, but we know that's not it. We know it's really what's going on in your heart, and it comes out through your obedience and baptism. And, and what's going on in your heart is a confidence. It's a confidence. It's a hope. It's an appeal that there's a risen Christ. Do you see that at the end of verse 21? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You, you appeal to God knowing that this Jesus who died in your place is risen and victorious and reigning. That's your hope. That's your future. And that's what allows you to endure suffering, to stay faithful and obedient, even when it hurts. So what do we do with all this? Well, there's a couple things. One is just going back to the big idea that faithful suffering leads to victory. If you're here and you're in a place where you're being mistreated for your faith, you're being looked down on for your faith, you're being persecuted in any way, Right? Many of you are, are, are dreading some of the family interactions you're about to have this week. Because maybe you've started trusting Christ and following God since the last time they saw you. Or maybe the last time they saw you, you told them that now I'm following God. And, and, and it, there's some tension there and there's some ugliness there. And you go, well, maybe, I just, maybe we just shouldn't bring it up. And I just, maybe we should go somewhere else. And maybe you feel that. And Peter here is saying, be faithful. Be faithful. So that's one thing to do. But here's the other thing. I think in light of the importance of verse 18, you need to ask yourself whether Jesus' sacrificial death has brought you to God. Have you been brought to God? Do you have a relationship with God? It's one thing to talk about what Jesus has done and he's done this for other people. Has he done it for you? He's made the introduction with his death and his resurrection. Have you ever appealed to him by faith, trusting in him, saying, God, save me? God, there's there's a flood of, of your judgment coming. If I die apart from you, there's a flood coming. And I need, I need a rescue. I need a boat named Jesus. Have you ever had that? Has, that? has that happened to you? If it hasn't, today is the day of salvation. It's the only certain time. It's the most likely time. You're thinking about it now. In a few minutes, you'll think about something else. Think about it. We have very few moments to reflect on what matters, and yet eternity is written into the hearts of men and women. Do you know God? If you pull out of here and a big semi-truck comes, and there are a lot of them on this Pecos Road, and those bushes are getting big, if you don't see it, I'm kidding, sort of. But seriously, listen, you, you don't know. You don't know. And if that, just say that happened. I hope it doesn't. Say that happened, where would you go? And if you were counting on, well, me and St. Peter will work that out when I get there. No. 
And so what I want to do now is I want to give us a moment quietly, and I, and I want to invite you to pray. And, I, and you can go ahead and bow your head now if you want. And if you're here and you've not yet trusted Christ, what I want you to do is I want you to pray. And I want you to tell Jesus that you know you're unrighteous. And tell him that you know he's the only Savior that you could ever hope in. And ask him to take control of your life. And that you want to follow him and be his disciple. And maybe you're here and you've already made that commitment at some point. You've already trusted Christ. What I want you to pray is that 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 sacrifice of Jesus would be sufficient for you too. That you'd stop being a, a slave to having to perform for God, that you would just rest in the finished work of Christ, that that, that blessing of God over you would, would make a difference and change you and fill your heart. So I'll give you a few moments to pray and, and then I'll close our time here together.